Assassins to another episode of the Dark Assassins podcast, the show that dives deep into not just technology, but the concepts, software, and procedures behind it all, and explains it so simply that even your grandma can understand it. As always, I'm your host, the Dark Assassin. So today, I think I think we got a pretty good one. We got uh, some good topics uh, that we're going to cover today, which I think is pretty good. Uh, the one that you're definitely going to want to stick around for is the fact that uh, a little-known dip for your chips or something you put on your burritos, a.k.a. guacamole, is actually something you can also put in your home labs. Yes. Might sound weird, but we're going to get into that. But first... We got a little bit of a uh, a story time. Um, so for this story time, uh, it comes from my day job, and the IT department uh, decided they were going to go full send a prod. Um, so if if you're unfamiliar with what any of that means, uh, basically what it means is they full send, obviously, just you know, go go ahead, no no concern for anything, not a care in the world, just go for it. Um, and then f- to prod, which is the uh, the cool hip way, I guess you could say, uh, that developers talk about um, production. So when you push something to production, if you push a code change to production, that means it's going uh, to be available to the general public or the wider audience not just uh, for development and testing. So if you think about when um, you push like a website change, for example, like if you have a website, uh, the quote-unquote send to prod would be when you actually update your uh, front-facing website. So if your website was uh, mywebsite.com, uh, when you would make a change to mywebsite.com and it would be reflected on the mywebsite.com page, that would be a push to pr- production or push to prod. Um, if you had an internal server, like say you were running uh, a server on your, say your desktop or whatever that you were testing changes locally, that would be, and you push something to there, that would be like a push to development or a push to dev or something like that. So production is when it gets pushed so everyone can see it or everyone gets to download it. Um, so if you're an IT department and you're pushing something to production, um, specifically like patches or security updates or something like that, you want to make sure they work first. That's generally a good practice. I mean, granted, not always. Not everyone does it. But it's generally best practice uh, to make sure that your updates and patches actually work and don't brick people's machines. And obviously by bricking a machine, we're just basically me- saying turning the machine into a paperweight or turning it into a brick because it can no longer function as a computer. Uh, and the same thing goes for, for software development too. Uh, you always want to make sure that your changes actually work before you push them. Even even to like a development environment, you want to make sure that your changes don't break something. Um, now, obviously, a development environment, the point of pushing to a development environment is for testing to make sure it actually works. But you should at least be doing some, you know, local testing and local um, checking to make sure that it's, you know, actually 
generally works. I mean, granted, you're probably going to miss out on some edge cases or maybe there's specific inputs or something, for example, that don't work as intended, but like basic stuff works. You know, that's something that you could push to production and then you can like, you know, test and find out what the bugs are and then eventually you get those bugs out and then once your code has gone through all that process then you push it to production but if you want to go full madman you can just full send a prod and just who cares about testing and who cares about the process of getting the bugs out because at the end of the day it works on my machine so it's all good so remember kids if your code works on your machine, it's 100% bulletproof, nothing's wrong with it, and if anyone has any issues, it's their machine's fault, and your code is perfecto. Uh, at least that's what whoever in the IT department thought, uh, because they pushed an update, which not only bricked my computer, my work computer, but it also apparently bricked a lot of other people's work computers as well. Uh, because when I uh, noticed that I couldn't log into my computer, I called up the help desk and was like, you know, explained them the issue. And was like, yeah, I can't log into my computer and, you know, explain what's going on. And they're like, yeah, we're getting a lot of calls this morning about that. Apparently, uh, someone pushed a, you know, a patch or an update or something. And, you know, a lot of people are having these issues. Uh, so specifically, what is that issue? So like most organizations, uh, we use like an ID badge to get ourselves into the building, right? Um, but one thing that uh, we also do that some places do, but it's not quite as common, is we also use our badge to log into our computer. So we just kind of, you know, put it in the computer and it logs us in. Uh, so the thing, so how that technology works is there is an internal USB header on the computer itself, or you could use an external reader for, with an external USB. Uh, to basically read the credentials on your card, and then it'll log you in. Uh, but the patch that was pushed uh, disabled all USB uh, ports, which you might see the issue here. If all USB ports are disabled, wouldn't that include the internal ones? You are absolutely correct. So if the internal USB port is disabled, that also disables the ability to be able to read our cards to allow us to log in. So our computer is essentially bricked and we have no way to log into it. So let's give a round of applause for the IT guy. So the stereotype here, of course, is that this is some, you know, summer intern or something that, you know, pushed his first change to production and is so hyped and so happy, and now he might not even be getting a chance to come back. Unfortunate. Now, obviously, I have no idea who pushed this change, if they were an intern or if they were a seasoned vet or, you know, I don't know any of that. But, of course, the meme is and the stereotype is when a something like this <laughs> that, like, completely bricks people's computers gets pushed to production the stereotype is that it was just some intern or something that you know didn't know any better and you know went full send um what obviously i i have no way of knowing if that's true 
Um, but I, what I do know <laughs> is whoever pushed that change is definitely going to be getting an earful uh, from other people on their team or their supervisor or the staff that has to go remote into all these bricked machines and re-enable the USB ports on them so they can actually log in because they just created a ton of work for them. So that is for certain. Uh, they're going to be in for an earful, assuming they even still have their job, <laughs> which I don't know if I'd necessarily... I don't. I guess I wouldn't necessarily say that because they pushed that, they're instantly going to get fired, uh, unless this has happened multiple multiple times and they're a repeat offender of pushing bad things to production then maybe but if this is like the first time they're probably just going to get like a stern talking to uh which is probably not going to be a fun time for them uh, and it definitely wasn't a fun time for uh me and probably a lot of other people either because you know we didn't have our computer for the entire day because i literally was about to leave for the day, and I got a phone call from, you know, the, the rep that was, you know, remoting into the machine to, like, fix it, like, you know, asking me to talk about what the problem was, and, you know, I told him, and then remotes into the machine, and literally with within less than 30 seconds, he, he was like, yep, fix the problem, restarting your computer now, and just let me know when it comes back up. So, uh, this guy pr had to have had, like, muscle memory down with how many of these issues he had to fix or maybe he even had a script or something that like auto fixed it for him i don't know but regardless i thought it was pretty funny uh you know the it department going full send to prod not even bothering bricking a ton of people's machines uh, and causing a lot of work for, for the uh the, the help desk people and the people that have to actually go in and fix the uh disaster that they caused but if it was so going back to this hypothetical if it was you know the stereotypical quote-unquote student intern I honestly kind of feel bad for them you know because like if you're if it's your first time ever like pushing you know your changes to production like that's a big deal like you know having the first time that something that you wrote is actually being pushed and going to be used by a lot of people like that's that's big that's that's huge uh and to have your first thing that you push just be absolute absolutely catastrophic and destroying <laughs> you know people's productivity for an entire day and the, just this mass you know I don't even know, like, the adjective, you know, to describe it. The, 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 not destruction, but, you know, the complete and utter failure of this push. Like, that, that's just got to be so demoralizing, right? Like, you're at the end of the end of your day. You've pushed your change to production. You're feeling really good. You come in the next day, and you realize that same change you pushed just bricked, like, half the company or a third or two-thirds or whatever the number is computers because of the change that you pushed man that's gotta hurt and then that earful that you're gonna get afterwards ooh, i do not envy that person that is for sure so moral of the story here uh if you're gonna be pushing anything to production make sure that you actually test it on multiple machines multiple devices uh, multiple platforms, multiple operating systems, you know, however, whatever you're planning to deploy this to, make sure you're testing it on thoroughly 
so something like this doesn't happen and don't be giving the it works on my machine excuse because that's not good enough um but i i will say um if you do want to become a meme on your company's slack channel or become a meme on the front page of r slash programmer humor then by all means 100 percent full send your code to production don't even bother testing it heck don't even bother running any tests just hit the build button as soon as it builds and compiles successfully push it don't even don't even doesn't matter if as soon as you run it it just errors out and breaks push it that's what you do if you want to become the meme you push your trash code to production sure you might lose your job and you know, everyone's going to hate you and IT is going to hate you because they have to, you created so much work for them, them having to patch all these systems and fix the mess you made. But, you know, you're getting the meme glory. You're becoming a meme. And isn't that worth it? Now, obviously, I hope you can hear the sarcasm in my voice. And please don't do that. <laughs> please. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that that was the story time. Good, good, fun times this week. That is for sure. So now let's get into the dip slash topping for your burrito guacamole that you can also use in your home lab. Yes. So there is a piece of software out there called Apache Guacamole, and basically what it is is it's essentially a remote management console, like a on the web like as a web browser that you can run uh, in your home lab environment. And what it allows you to do is you can connect remotely to all of your virtual machines, all of your desktops, laptops, you know, whatever. Uh, it has compatibility for a load of different protocols. Um, SSH, which is a secure shell, like command line stuff. Uh, Telnet, which is essentially the same thing as SSH, but it's not encrypted, so don't use that. Uh, unless you want everyone seeing every single command that you send to a remote machine, which uh, you don't want to have happen, trust me. Uh, and then it also has things for like remote desktop protocols like RDP, uh, which is like what Windows uses for their remote desktop. Um, and then it also has uh, VNC also, which is another kind of remote desktop uh, application as well. Um, so what you can do is you can configure this to... Uh, the like they you can configure like the IP and the username and password of a remote machine and whether you're connecting uh, through VNC RDP SSH you know whatever you're connecting to uh, and then you have access to that through the web browser that you can access this machine remotely so you could be on say your your mobile phone whether you're on Android or iPhone you can navigate to wherever uh, this server is running its IP address and you can connect to it, and then you can have full access to your entire home lab from the palm of your hand, which is really cool and really powerful. Obviously, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it just for the sense that in my experience using it and using like remote desktops on my phone, it's generally not the best experience mainly because the phone screen's so darn small. So trying to like navigate around with the phone screen, sure it's doable, but it's just kind of a pain and kind of an inconvenient and I'd much rather just have a laptop 
or, you know, a desktop or some kind of larger screen that I can, you know, more easily navigate and maneuver around a remote session like that. But regardless, it is it is so nice. Like you don't even need to have a computer with any anything installed. As long as it has a web browser, you can connect to your entire stack in your data center, aka home lab, um, and without issue. Like you could be using a uh, a trash book, aka Chromebook, uh, that can only connect to the internet, and without any you know because it's a trash book it can't it doesn't run anything native natively so you can't install things like you know an rdp client or a vnc client or heck i don't even know if chromebooks have ssh abilities on them they might i don't know but regardless it doesn't matter because you can just go to the the web address of your server that's running this apache guacamole and you can remote access, remote manage everything. So in so the the really cool thing about this is you could have a a massive powerhouse of like a workstation uh like at your house or something or in your server rack or you know wherever you want it. Uh, and then you could have as long as you have remote access to it, you can be anywhere. If you have a cool bomb and home lab setup, and you have a VPN that you can connect to back to your home lab, you could literally be anywhere in the world and remotely access that device, connect into the VPN, go to Guacamole, access the device, and you got all that power either in the palm of your hand, like on your phone, or maybe you're on like a tablet or something, or maybe you're chilling you know on the beach with a laptop or something or something that isn't that powerful but you can still have all that power in the palm of your hand or on your lap or you know whatever the case may be and you don't have to worry about like actually being right in front of the device and the other thing that's really cool about it too is if you have say a server rack like i do and you have you know a whole bunch of computers you don't need to necessarily like plug you know a monitor and mouse and keyboard into the device that you're trying to access you can just connect to it remotely through a web browser which is like as convenient as it gets pretty much um, now obviously for for something it's it is limited in the sense that if you want to reboot a system and access the bios and all that good stuff obviously you can't do that with this tool because uh, in order for those remote sessions like SSH, VNC, RDP, in order for those to work, you actually have to be booted into the operating system. So if you actually wanted a solution where you could access like the BIOS and all that stuff, you would need some kind of uh, KVM solution, which is essentially a, uh, a way that you can access the computer uh, and you can even get access to the BIOS and things like that. So uh, one common thing that you'll see is like um, enterprise servers. Uh, for example, they have like a lights out management port. Uh, they, they call them different things. And HP's line, it's like I, I, ILO, I think, which is like integrated lights out. Um, Dell's version is iDRAC. Uh, I mean, they, there's multiple different versions. IP, IPMI is like just the base standard, which... Uh, um, is just a way for you to like pull data from a server even if it's powered off uh, which is definitely really cool 
But in these softwares, what you can do is it you can get a virtual console essentially, um, which will act like a KVM um, in the sense that you can access the BIOS screen um, even if you're not physically at the machine. But in real terms, what an actual dedicated KVM would do would plug directly into the machine and then you would have like a, a little console thing which kind of looks like if you're using a, a rack mounted version it kind of looks like a laptop basically that you can open it and it has a screen and you can change between which input you want to use so if you want to use uh, say your server one you can click a button to get server one's uh, screen um, and then you get a full mouse or I say mouse which really a trackpad and then a keyboard that you can interact you know physically with the the hardware and the server and that way you would be able to get a BIOS that way um, but generally at least in my experience I don't really find myself needing to access the BIOS of a computer all that often and that's like you know in my my uh, rack for instance so that's not which so I really haven't had the need for a dedicated KVM like that which can like slide into my rack and then I can open it up and you know access uh, the different um, uh, you know whichever server I want to access uh, but the and honestly the only use that that a KVM like that for me personally would have would be for accessing the BIOS because all my servers that I run aside from like I think a couple what, let me think Aside from two computers that I run, which are literally just desktop computers that I converted into quote-unquote servers, uh, one of them runs a desktop version of Linux and one of them runs Windows. Uh, aside from those, the all the other servers in my rack just boot into a command line, which I can remote into anyway. So having a dedicated KVM that I can you know physically access the the video output through a you know this console like in the rack is kind of pointless uh for the majority of my use case because like i said i don't really have a need for accessing it unless i need to get to the BIOS. so as much as i want to add a kvm into my rack and i think it'd be really really cool uh the the need just really isn't there because like i mentioned uh, most of two of my servers that i have run proxmox which just boots into which is a hypervisor and it just boots into a command line interface and then my other uh, server is a uh, runs truenas which again also boots into a command line interface so there's really <laughs> no need for a kvm um so as as much as i would definitely like to get one uh I, I don't know if i'll really see it happening anytime soon but which is which going bringing this all the way back to guacamole uh that's kind of the nice thing about that is i can you know the vms that i run on my proxmox servers that actually do have video output i couldn't even access those anyway if i had a you know dedicated kvm but with guacamole i can access them just fine and because they're running as VMs in Proxmox, if for whatever reason I needed to get to their BIOS screen, if you will, uh, it's not, I guess it's kind of a BIOS. Uh, if I needed to get to that screen, like, you know, the pre-boot screen to like change like configuration settings there, which generally I never have to do. But in a hypothetical sense, I did. I could just 
log into the Proxmox web uh, web console and do it that way. So <laughs> because because it's running in a VM, I wouldn't even be able to access it through the KVM. So it would, again, kind of make it pointless. But like I said, guacamole, if you have a home lab, I would definitely recommend, if you don't have it installed anyway, I would definitely recommend uh, setting it up and installing it since it is a very, very cool tool. And speaking of my home lab, uh, we have some updates. <laughs> I bought, recently, I have bought two new computers. One of them I actually have to build and put together. It was it, I bought it as like a bare bones thing. Uh, those parts haven't arrived yet, but... Uh, it should be a it should be a pretty cool server. I'm looking forward to getting my hands on it and uh, playing around with it. The other one uh, is running a desktop version of Linux, um, and the, really the main point of this guy was for me to have a server. I say server, which then again, any computer can be a server. It doesn't have to be a specifically rack mounted thing. So just. You know, just it's just like a, a, a terminology difference. But the main the main reason I got this was, you know, have a dedicated system that when I'm, you know, away from home for and I only have my phone, say for example, I can easily remote in and do all the remote management stuff I would normally do from say one of my normal computers, like say my Mac Mini, which is kind of like my quote unquote everyday, you know, daily driver, if you will, that I have like on my desk, which I have all my like remote management stuff like Ansible installed. So the point of this Linux desktop was, which I've, is now a server, uh, was to be able to have that capability to remotely manage my entire uh, network and server stack remotely uh, without actually having to, even having access to any of my other computers. Um, and so far I've had that up and running for a few days now, and it's honestly been working spectacularly. Uh, I cannot I, I cannot be happier with it. And the other thing that I, I like about it is rather than most of the servers that I run in virtual machines where I just run a server uh, OS without actually having a GUI on it, so there's no like graphical user interface, the only way I can access it is through like a command line. This I actually installed a desktop uh, to it so I can actually remote in through a, you know a virtual uh, desktop application like VNC or RDP uh, and actually have a full Linux desktop if I actually need to do anything with a desktop which is really cool and I'm definitely enjoying it uh, for sure but since I, I mentioned I was uh, getting some new parts in to build a server uh, I, I came to the real I, I guess I didn't come to this realization I already knew this but it, it you know came back to me that like Sometimes the most expensive part of a server build or even a computer build for that matter, especially if you're going on the used market, which if you're dealing with a home lab, uh, unless you're some bougie rich kid that is willing to spend thousands or most likely tens of thousands on brand new enterprise hardware, uh, you're going on the used market and buying used components like that specifically ram is absurd like this recent build that i configured i kid you not the ram that i put in that the ram that i got was half essentially half of what the total server cost which is kind of crazy now the 
I, I guess the, the thing with the RAM is RAM prices, they really haven't changed like at all. Like when was it? I So the first time I built a server was like two years ago and I bought a 64 gigabyte uh, kit of ECC registered RAM running at like 1600 megahertz, I believe. And back then you could get 64 gigs of that kind of RAM for around a hundred bucks. Um, and obviously two years later, DDR, DDR3 is even more outdated since back then DDR4 was, you know, the big thing. And now in 2022, DDR5 is starting to come out and you're seeing systems running with DDR5. So DDR4 is the old guy and DDR3 is the really old guy. But if you look online for a 64 gigabyte kit of ECC RAM at 1600 megahertz, it's still like around 100 bucks. Like what the heck? And then if you want to go anything more than that, like you know 128 or 256 or anything like that, it, it just like doubles. Like it's insane. Like so, if you're just trying to build a system and you don't need much RAM, it's not that big of an issue. But like if you're trying to do something like I am and you want a system that can do virtualization and like you know run something like Proxmox or some other hypervisor you need RAM you you can't get around the fact that you need RAM and usually when you're you know doing a creating a hypervisor build like this your limiting factor generally isn't your CPU power it's generally your RAM capacity you run out of RAM way quicker than you run out of CPU powder power usually unless you're you know allocating like half your cores to like one VM but even then if you allocate a ton of your CPU resources to one virtual machine unless you got that thing running compute like virtually non-stop and it's mostly going to be idling a lot of the time like if i look at you know my proxmox you know web app and it can show it shows me stats like what my utilization is my utilization is like almost always well below five percent like it's around like you know two three percent utilization and keep in mind i'm running i don't i don't remember the exact numbers but i'm probably running at least 10 if not more vms constantly that they're always up 24 7 and i'm only using like one to two percent like you know two three percent utilization of the cpu which obviously i'm allocated if you actually break it down obviously well more than two to three percent of the cpu is allocated to those vms but if you look at the ram usage the ram usage is you know way higher than that because you know you obviously need RAM, so, and so that's usually your limiting factor if you're trying to build do a virtualization build. RAM is generally the limiting factor, which really stinks because RAM is always like compared to everything else, RAM is always the most expensive. Like if you, especially if you're going on older platforms, like if you're a big one that a lot of people in the home lab community love is the. Uh, LGA 2011 uh, platform, which if you're unfamiliar, all that means LGA, 20, uh, LGA 2011, that's just like the term for the socket that a CPU uses. So for example, if I have a CPU that is made for the L LGA 2011 socket, it'll work on this platform. But if I have something that's a LGA uh, 
1366, it won't work. So that the whole LGA 2011 is just, you know, the type of socket and what kind of CPUs will work for it. But anyway, uh, if you're using, say, that platform, you know, CPUs are pretty darn cheap. Like, uh, the CPUs that I bought, I got two of them for, I kid you not, $14. $14 for two CPUs, enterprise-level CPUs, with each having, I believe it's eight cores and 16 threads for eight bucks, or 14 bucks. I mean, that is... <laughs> If that if that ain't depreciation, I don't know what is. Like those CPUs when they were new, easily in the two thousand dollar range. But now, fourteen bucks. And I should also mention that two thousand dollar range. That was just for one of them, <laughs> and I got two of them for fourteen dollars. So yeah. And then of course there's the RAM. That's like you know I mentioned a sixty four gigabyte kit is you know almost a hundred dollars. So like. <laughs> You got 32 cores, or, well, 30, yeah, so 32, essentially, cores, which are, you know, logical cores. Physical cores, you got 16. Um, so if you're unfamiliar with how that works, um, CPUs generally, uh, not all, but a lot of them will have uh, what's called hyper-threading, hyper which allows you to have one physical core, and then with that one physical core, you get two lo what they call logical cores. So for in this example, I have a eight-core CPU, which has eight physical CPU cores, and then each one of those eight cores has two logical processors that can you know, act like cores. So while you only have eight physical, you essentially get 16. Um, so that's basically how that works. So, you know, you're getting 32 cores that you can run all of your VMs on, but you, you're limited when it comes to RAM. And that's always, that's always, it's always the limiting factor is the RAM. And the RAM is always insanely expensive. That and storage. Although if you're building a, you know, a virtualization build like this, storage pales in comparison to RAM, unless you're making a, a massive, you know, for whatever reason, you're making a, a massive amount of storage because you want your VMs all to have like, I don't know, 256 or a terabyte of storage, which personally, I don't know why you would ever do that. Most of my VMs, I think, run like maybe 32 gigabytes, maybe 40, maybe 64, like, because if you're running a virtual machine, you know, to run a specific process, like going back to guacamole, for example, if you're running a virtual machine just to run guacamole, you don't need, you know, like a desktop level amounts of processing power and RAM for that. You don't need, you know, eight cores and, you know, 16 gigabytes or 32 gigabytes of RAM, like, you know, throw, give that thing one or two cores, maybe in like a gig of RAM, something like that. Um, but obviously if you're running, you know, like I run a couple of, you know, development environments so I can do like code testing and whatnot. In those cases, I'm obviously going to give them more RAM and more compute power since, you know, they'll need them when I deploy code to do testing and whatnot. But yeah, it's just, it's just something that I came back to realize that if you're trying to do a virtualization build, you'll get, you'll price out all the components before your RAM, and you're like, man, this is a cheap build, I can do this, and then you price out the RAM, and you're like, well, shoot, my price just doubled, <laughs> so if you're, if you're trying to do a build like this, where you're wanting to do some kind of virtualization, 
uh, before if you don't pick the Ram first, see what your uh, your total comes out to before you add the Ram. Then double that, and that's probably what you're going to be looking at once you add the Ram in. Depending on how ham you want to go on Ram and if you can find a good deal or not, but it is what it is. It's a, it's it's a first world problems as they say. Uh, but you know the th- the other thing too with it is. Uh, as it, it's the home labbing community and the home labbing hobby is one of those things that you're never done. <laughs> you're never satisfied. Once you, even though you think you have a sweet setup and you're never going to need to upgrade again, you find something that makes you just want to upgrade and you get that itch again and you just got to upgrade. <laughs> um, or maybe you're some, some hardware fails or something and you have to upgrade, but you know what the case may be. It's a, it's a revolving cycle, but that's that's how it is, you know, with any kind of hobby. You know, you you always find yourself putting money into it, but you know that that's kind of the point. It's part of the fun. Um, so going into the last thing, um, I kind of I'm starting to almost starting to feel bad about how much I've been ripping on like tech YouTubers, but man, did they just get ripped a new one? And which the th- the reason I bring this up is because, not because to boost my own ego in the fact that, see, I'm not the only one that's saying this, but the fact that, like, what they they mention is, like, so applicable to me, and, like, I, so, I totally feel them. Um, so basically, here's, here's, here's essentially what they're saying. They wanted a side-by-side comparison uh, to their uh, 15, 2015 uh, MacBook Pro uh, compared to one of the newer MacBook Pros, either a M1 or an M2, but uh, rather than doing like photography or video related, which is like all the YouTubers do, actually do something with like you know say virtual machines, which I think would be really cool. And personally, I've watched a lot of like tech reviews on the new MacBooks, and I have not once seen a single review talk about you know, how it handles virtual machines, which if you're someone like me, like that's something that you care about. Uh, Like, I mean, obviously I have, you know, servers that I can run virtual machines on all day, but you know, sometimes you want to have a virtual machine on your, on your local machine. Like if you're just trying to test something or maybe, uh, well, I guess even in my case, I, being away from home isn't even an excuse. Uh, (laughs) But for, for a lot of people that don't have, uh, a mini data center at their house. Uh, if they're away from home or even at home, uh, and they want to, you know, experiment around with another operating system, a virtual machine is the way to go. And most of the time, you only have one device, so that machine's gonna have to do. Uh, so if it can't run virtual machines well, well, <laughs> I don't know what you're gonna do. But anyway, I thought that was really cool that they, you know, wanted to see something with with virtual machines. But they go on. Because they say all I'm seeing in these reviews is benchmark testing of benchmark testing related to quote unquote I'm quoting they put this in quotes real world stress tests heavily skewed to video and photo editing which obviously you know they're they're video editors by trade that's what they do so obviously they're gonna try to they're gonna lead more into that because that's you know what they do but you know they go on to say that those tests don't measure stuff I do which I'm like, yes, man, preach. And I think I can tell, uh, you know, talk for most of you that you don't do photo and video editing on the regular, right? I, like, I think when I mentioned in my first, like, 
Um, uh, when I when I first kind of brought up this topic about tech YouTubers and kind of you know saying how they're out of touch, this was this is one of the things that I brought up, right? That most people, if they do any kind of video editing or photo editing, it's like maybe maybe once once a year, maybe a couple times a year after like a family vacation or something like that, and they're putting together like a collage or a slideshow or or something to you know kind of put it all together in one nice package or something like that. You're not doing video editing on the reg uh, or regular. Uh, so it's not, you know, necessarily applicable to stuff that they do. And they go on and talk about, you know, how they want to run Windows on the same machine, but obviously boot camp isn't supported anymore on Apple Silicon, which in fairness, I'm not sure who's really to blame for that because yes, Apple killed off boot camp, which is a shame, but at the same time, Windows for ARM is an absolute joke. <laughs> like, Microsoft's really got to get it together on that. So, it's kind of, you know, the chicken and the egg kind of thing. Like, Apple needs Microsoft to do it. And, like, well, I guess it's not really chicken and the egg. But, like, the, the problem is, the only way that you can get boot camp is if you have Windows built for ARM but Windows built for ARM doesn't really exist like in the way that, you know, Windows exists. Like you can't just download Windows for ARM and run it really. Like it's it's not the same process as, you know, downloading an ISO of Windows for a Microsoft's website. Um, so, you know, there's that. So like I get where he's coming from. Um, I just wanted to, you know, point that out. I'm not the only one that's getting mad at tech YouTubers for kind of being out of touch with us normal folks um, and, you know, heavily skewing and their test results to be, while they say, quote unquote, real world, not really applicable to us normal human beings. So I just thought I'd, you know, bring that up. Maybe it entertained you. I know it definitely entertained me, uh, you know, hearing other other people having similar complaints uh, to my own. It always feels kind of feels good. Uh, when you realize you're not alone in something like that. Um, so I think that's that's pretty much going to do it for this episode. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, I ask that you leave a rating and review and subscribe to the Dark Assassins podcast if you haven't done so already. Uh, also, be sure to share with a friend or family member who uh, you think would be interested in you know learning about pushing pushing to prod, uh, going full send to prod, or maybe learning about guacamole uh, to improve their home lab setup, or even to be able to remote into uh, your machine uh, from anywhere in the world, assuming you have a VPN, of course. Um, and if you have any questions about this episode, or you have any questions that you want me to answer in a future episode, uh, feel free to leave that in a rating and review with your question, or you can email me at contact at darkassassinsinc.com, or click the link in the show notes below. And that's going to do it for me in this episode of the Dark Assassins podcast. Until next time, my fellow assassins, remember, bull nothing equals true. If action not equal to null, return true. I'll see you next time on the Dark Assassins Podcast.